Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooters Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. This week's guest is number two on my Shooter of the Year points race that was just released. He was fourth at Carry Optics Nationals, second at Open Nationals, and third at Single Stack Nationals. He would join me in welcoming to the show... Mr. John Vlieger. Welcome, John. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I sure did. How about yourself? Yeah, it was great. Stayed uh, stayed home, uh, wife and uh, three dogs, and just had some great uh, great food. I made uh, pot roast for myself and uh, mashed potatoes and, uh, you know, usual fixings. Just lounged around. Pot- it was a great Thanksgiving. Pot roast, no turkey, huh? No, I want to change things up. I usually do a ham or a uh, pork shoulder. Uh, I've tried a turkey a long time ago and found that between the work it takes and my enjoyment of it, my wife's vegetarian, so it's just me enjoying it. Mm, and uh, okay. to do a pot roast in a crock pot is about five minutes of work and just as much enjoyment. Yeah. So that's my yes. personal. Totally I, I try to agree with that. I, I try not to get too stuck in traditions when it doesn't make sense. Okay. Yeah, I don't blame you one bit. So if you would, John, go ahead and take a moment and introduce yourself. Great. Yeah. My name is John Vlieger. Uh, I've been uh, in the competition shooting uh, arena uh, since 2013, 2014 timeframe, uh, really pushing hard at it since 2015, 16 area. Uh, I currently work at Mark 7 Reloading. Uh, if you want to load like you mean it, load with automation, get rid of that handle, let us know. Uh, we are running a sale right now, but that's not really you know pertinent right this second. Uh, my background before that, I worked at Shooters Connection Incorporated, same day shipping. Uh, I'm sure most people who have uh, who are listening to this podcast have uh, made an order from there and haven't been disappointed. Uh, prior to that, I spent 10 years in the US, United States Army uh, as a 13 Delta fire direction for artillery. Deployed Iraq twice, Afghanistan once, from uh, 06 to 16. I was doing that. Uh, prior to that. Uh, uh, born in California, raised in Washington State, uh, Central Washington, and uh, seen a lot, seen most of the Union uh, in my travels in the Army, and especially with competition shooting. Uh, so, I like to think I'm a little well traveled. But uh, I shoot primarily open division. Uh, but I love uh, separating myself from what I know, and you know, playing in carry optics, playing in single stack uh, to to break things up. And I found that I'm pretty good at. Uh, most of them, so keep doing it. Keep going at it. Uh, I'm married, no kids, but three whippets. Uh, for those who don't know, a whippet is a basically a medium greyhound. It's not an Italian greyhound. It's uh, Italian greyhounds. I like to call rats on stilts. Uh, whippets are a little bit bigger than that. But yeah, there are our kids, and uh, I live in northern Kentucky, just north of Lexington, and uh, loving what I do. I have a range on my property, and like to shoot as much as possible. Okay. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. So we will come back. I got the elevator, elevator pitch. You know, to... <laughs> right. Well, I was going to ask you about the dogs and you, you talked about them. So that's good. Um, I'm a great Dane guy. So there's a part of a greyhound going on. Yep. Yeah, we, we, we had a neighbor with a Dane. Love those dogs. They're great. They are. They're awesome. All right. Well, John, what I normally do is ask the really tough icebreaker questions right up front. Make it as difficult as possible. And then the rest of the podcast is pretty simple. 
Okie doke. Let's try it. All right. Favorite movie? <sighs> Starship Troopers. Oh, wow. Okay. That's kind of like a cult classic type of a thing. Campy. Uh, almost nothing to do with the book. I have read the book. Uh, oh. And it came out in the late 90s, 97, 99, something like that. And uh, uh, for a, I was born in 89, 34, for those who want to know. So that was a very uh, early exposure to sci-fi, military sci-fi. I'm a big reader of military sci-fi. Uh, favorite series, by the way, is Expeditionary Force, uh, the last book in the series coming out in just a few weeks. I'm really excited. But uh, no, Starship Troopers is, I mean, your average American boy that loves to play cowboys and Indians and cops and robbers and, you know, bang, bang, finger guns. It's one of the best movies for that kind of person. It's a lot of shooting, a lot of action, you know, gore, just military sci-fi. It's got a great enemy, you know, you don't have to worry about, uh, Oh, do I feel sorry for the villain here? No, they're alien bugs trying to kill humanity. Let's just yeah, they're bugs. Yeah, they're kill bugs. them all. Uh, yeah. Only good, uh, only good bug is a dead bug. Remember that. <laughs> That's right. Oh but, uh, my goodness. The, the the reason that was an easy answer is uh, I don't tend to watch movies more than once, and I've seen Starship Troopers at least five, ten times. Wow. And, uh, and it was nineteen ninety seven. Ninety seven. I was right. My first uh, my first guess there. So yeah. I did not see it in theaters, although I did see it uh, shortly after. Well, I was already in the military by the time you were born, John, so I'm not telling you my age. Sorry, um, I wasn't born earlier. <laughs> All right. So you are one of the few. You admitted that you read books. What is your favorite book? This is going to – This is gonna. if you're a true sci-fi nerd, you'll understand, but this might throw people for a loop. Hyperion, and specifically – the Hyperion Cantos, the three book trilogy. It is extremely difficult to get into this book. Let me just start you off there. All right. And the, the first book and the la the third book are pretty different, but the plot twist, I'm not gonna give anything away at the end of the series. Uh, still, I still remember to this day. And I still think it was one of the best, I don't want to say plot twist, but uh, tying up loose ends, giving fulfillment to the series. Like this, these are very dense books uh, in the sci-fi kind of, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. They're not super technical. They don't really explain how things work. It's just, you know, okay. Anyway, uh, a lot of storyline. Yeah. It's a lot of storyline, a lot of character development. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, but yeah, the, the Hyperion Cantos, I uh, started reading it in high school. I think I didn't finish it until, I don't know, age 19 or something like that, age 20. And uh, it was really, I would strongly encourage people who like sci-fi, who think they like sci-fi, to uh, think of it as a as a really long-winded Star Wars. It, it looks like more aliens. Um, no, not, not really. No? Okay, well, I, I just Googled Hyperion Cantos, and I see some videos and it almost looks like there's a an alien or some other type of bug looking creature. Um, don't 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 take the the cover seriously. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, I actually, and I'm, I'm drawing on you know memories of I, I last last I read it was probably 15 years ago. Um, but uh, 
yeah. Anyhow, it, it, it's a hard read. I'm not gonna not gonna sugarcoat okay. it. But no, uh, I, I liked it, and that kind of says a lot about, like I said, Starship Troopers, military sci-fi, uh, the the series I mentioned, the Expeditionary Force. Uh, the audio books are over 20 hours long a, a piece, and there is over 15 books in the series. So wow, yeah. So and the voice acting is great in that series, by the way. But uh, but yeah, I have. I have my likes and dislikes. You know, I, I see reading as an escape. It's a, you know, it's a way to get away. My wife's really into history and nonfiction. I'm the opposite. I, I don't want to, if I'm reading something that's factual, it's usually applied to work or something that applies to work, you know, the, the sense of work and, uh, and education, which is great and fine in its own realm. But when, I, when I'm reading for pleasure, I like to read things that take me to a different world. Okay, so that that begs me to to ask the question: um, the movie series Alien Aliens. Have you seen those at all? Yes, um, and I was really into the lore, the background of it when I was younger. Uh, Alien, great, priceless, can't replace it. My dad told me about watching it in theaters for the first time, and just the chills and the, the effect it had on cinema was amazing. Aliens, mm-hmm. I think, is a one of the best sci-fi movies of all time uh just period i i i did not say aliens i said starship troopers earlier aliens is a close second uh but alien three cubed or whatever i mean uh, it just went straight off a cliff man and alien resurrection i saw it multiple times and it's okay it's great for the time period but it was not in the same vein of aliens gotcha kind of like john wick four you know kind of goes off the I rails not, a little bit at the end i saw john wick one and two and i'm not caught okay up. Yeah. okay well the last one there's just a little too much falling downstairs for me i, I good movie I, but still i have a hard time turning the brain off uh in those fight scenes and i just think to myself how unrealistic all of it is and it just kind of i'm not able to, to suspend my disbelief unfortunately they're kind of uh, easy enjoyment for me. Something easy mm-hmm. to watch. If you're into superheroes, then who's your favorite superhero? If not, historical figure. I read a lot. I don't really have a favorite superhero. I have, you know, ones I like more than others. And part of that comes back to not being able to turn my brain off. Like once a nerd explanation for that, really nerd, is some of the most powerful superheroes in Marvel and DC respectively. I mean, Trying to think. Yeah, Marvel and DC. In DC, the Flash is a, a god, basically. He's able to turn back time. He's able to vibrate through walls. He could kill people without them, you know, realizing anything. And in uh, the Marvel universe, the Marvel universe. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, I Iceman. Yeah, Iceman is is DC as well, right? X, is that? No, no, Iceman is X Men. Yeah, Iceman is Marvel. I'm I'm, I'm correct there. Uh, Iceman uh, can control entropy, uh, which means he can stop the movement of your atoms, which turns him into a god as well. He could do whatever he wants with matter. Um, so those kind of, those two characters tend to be undersold with their powers, and it kind of turns me off to that thing. Like it's you know once you see what they're capable mm-hmm. of, it kind of makes it like okay, yeah, he's holding back, and it's like the opposite of Superman. Superman is can do anything, and we have to keep inventing ways that tunes him back and you know the flash and iceman are the opposite where people don't realize how strong they are 
but that's a very nerd explanation of that. I know, you know, uh, okay. uh, Punisher probably, uh, especially really? as I got older, uh, but he's the anti-hero man, uh, you know, uh, cops with like running the Punisher logo. It's like, do you know what that logo means? You know, like that's, you're not using that logo correctly. That does not mean what you think it means. Uh, but, uh, yeah, some of the first graphic novels I got was the Punisher, uh, and very gritty, very, uh, true to the spirit of the character, I think. And I, I think, uh, the Punisher has kind of gotten whitewashed in that regard in, uh, you know, what was it? Uh, the most recent series, I'm only caught a little bit of it, did pretty good though, from what I remember, uh, showing the grittiness of it. But yeah. Okay. Favorite gun. And favorite caliber, they don't have to be linked together. Okay. <laughs> so what what do you have there? Uh, Rafferty Custom Guns. Uh, they're my open guns. I, I I'm and to say they're my favorite is is not really accurate. Uh, I see my my firearms, especially my competition guns, as as tools. They are they were purchased for the express intent, express purpose of competing in this sport. Um, I would not own, you know, uh, eh, maybe the single stack is a really nice gun, but if it weren't for this sport, I, I wouldn't have gotten to know Pat Rafferty, who's a really good friend of mine these days. Um, and I, I wouldn't have a reason to, to have these, these firearms. Uh, so I, I see these guns as tools, you know, when they wear out, they will either be replaced or repaired. Uh, it is, you know, they have blemishes, they have, uh, scratches on them they have you know all that i've put well heck this one uh is number one got a range panda optic cover there uh this one's number number one was built in uh january or early 2020 and it's still all original and scott uh i kept track this year but i have not kept track on individual guns uh that gun probably has oh at least 25 on it um yeah at least 25 i'd say a thousand and it's still all original, still, still trucking, you know, it's still original slide and barrel. Uh, but I, I treat my guns with respect, you know, I, I take care of them. I don't abuse them. I don't, you know, throw them in dump barrels like some dirty three gunners do. Uh, but, uh, at the same time, <laughs> that was a joke. Uh, at the same time, the, it, it's a tool. It's like, it's like, it's like racing cars, you know, it's like, oh, I love this engine. It's my favorite engine. When it pops, you're not going to make a burial for it. You're going to repair it or you're going to replace it. Uh, and that's kind of how mm -hmm. I see the guns. They're very, very nice guns. They do their job excellently. They're some of the best firearms I've ever had in my possession. And I like to keep them. But if, if when they finally break, it'll be, hey, Pat, they finally gave up, man. You know, we got five years, six years, eight years, whatever it is out of them. Let's uh, start in the new ones or what have you. And uh, I do have guns that are... Uh, heirloom, you know, I have a shotgun, uh, a model night was it Remington Remington model 10 a or 10 T I have to check the serial number. Uh, but it was manufactured in February of 1914 and it was purchased shortly thereafter by my great grandfather and, uh, has been in the family ever since, uh, that gun is not my favorite. I've only shot it a handful of times, but I'm not going to get rid of it. I would sell my, my Rafferty custom, you know, custom open guns before I'd sell that gun. So does that make the shotgun my favorite? No, no. I enjoy shooting my, my open guns more. I get more use out of them. I get more enjoyment out of them. 
but I, I've always had a trouble with the, the term favorite, I guess, is what I'm really trying to say. Mm, um, okay. I got gotcha. you. Uh, the, but yeah, yeah, the guns are tools. They are there for a purpose. Uh, if people want to have, you know, super strong feelings one way or the other about individual firearms, they're more than welcome to. It's just not for me. Okay. What about caliber? You have a favorite caliber? I, 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 nine, just because it's, it's so ubiquitous. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm glad a caliber won the caliber wars. It's obviously nine millimeter. Um, it just makes life a lot easier. You know, when you have economy of scale for those items, you know, that's why we're able to shoot nine millimeter so cheaply these days as economy of scale and demand. Uh, I don't, it's good enough for the applications it's put into, you know, when you have, uh, when you need it to, when you need a gun to do things that nine millimeter can't do, it's time to change caliber. It's not time to change nine millimeter, I guess. And uh, for you know personal protection, nine millimeter is just fine. Oh, but forty five doesn't shrink. Yeah, but I can get you know three rounds of nine on target faster than I can get two. You know, I'm pulling numbers yeah. out of my uh, fourth point. I know what you mean. Here. But uh, it, you know, there's a lot of factors for it. Um, but no, I'm not. Uh, not much of a rifle shooter. I, I probably will be at some point, like to. But uh, no, pistol, 9mm is readily available. The components to load it are readily available. It makes sense. It does just fine. It's put a lot of it's put a lot of uh, bad guys in the ground, you know, uh, just fine. And especially with modern uh, hollow point and technology and uh, practices, you know, putting around where it counts is the first step. And regardless of... Uh, of self-defense chosen caliber and nine millimeters that just does, does just fine when you got a little tongue cop tied there does just fine when you do your part well john i mean if you don't shoot rifle you must be racist i mean that's the only that's the only i, I, have, a, I have a few of, i'm shooting rifle tomorrow actually uh bluegrass hey, hey. in wilmore okay. is holding a night match uh which they only host once a year once or twice a year to uh toys for tots as well is integrated into it. Your entry fee is a toy for uh, the Kentucky Children's Hospital, I think. I'd have to reference the uh, literature. But uh, yeah, purchase a toy, and that's your entry fee. So I, I look forward to it. Ooh. I have a weapon light on my 300 Blackout. Going to run it suppressed. And I uh, don't have that hanging out handy. Yeah, it's fine. It's a generic Bear Creek Upper uh, Form 1 uh, suppressor on it. But, uh, but yeah. I do that occasionally. All right. I'm writing down a um, question I'm going to ask you once we get to a certain part of the oh, you're uh, fine. show. All right. Now, you mentioned that you were in the Army for 10 years. We'll get into that a little bit more later. 10 years, one month, 19 days, but who's counting? There you go. I was nine and a half in the Marines. So we'll, we'll get into all that, though. Um, but the last question I like to ask the individual for the icebreaker portion is geared towards them. So yeah. with spending that much time in the military, what was your favorite memory or what was your best memory? I won't say favorite. Uh, this, so I've told this story a few times and uh, it, 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 it's a, it, it can make people be like, that's your favorite. What the heck is wrong with you? A little bit like, and, and 
long story short, I, I didn't do, I wasn't special forces. I wasn't anything to, you know, write a book about. I, I feel like I did my job well, and you know, the rest is kind of history. Uh, I'm proud of what I did, but, uh, there's one incident in, uh, 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 Afghanistan, my third tour, uh, 2011, 2012, this happened oof, probably mid 12, early 12. And, uh, I was taking a shower. It was just, just around dusk. I was taking a shower and, uh, the, the SOP in the area was around right before dusk. They chucked some rounds at us and, and boogie, you know, they, they would use a 84 millimeter recoilless rifle rounds and they shoot them at a low angle. Uh, so our radars had had trouble picking them up for where they're shooting from. And they'd chuck three rounds at us and they'd get on their scooter and, 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 and boogie. It took us a long time to, to track down who these yahoos were. But uh, I was a, the fire direction, fire direction center chief uh, for that installation. It was a uh, cop, uh, for those of you who want to look it up, uh, cop Zormat, Zormat, Z-O-R-M-A-T, which is about 20 kilometers west of the Shahkat Valley. For those of you who are familiar, mm. Operation Anaconda happened in the Shahkat Valley, a wonderful lesson joint forces operations in the United States military. For those of you who want to learn about how bad it can go, look that up. Uh, but uh, we're out there and I'm taking a shower and I hear a boom. And I'm thinking to myself, man, are mortars shooting a loom? They would have told me if they were shooting a loom, right? Eh, it's dust. Maybe they saw someone in the 20 minutes I've been gone and from the operations center, maybe they saw someone doing something weird and they're shooting illumination. And then less than like eight, 10 seconds later, another boom happens, which is not the standard for shooting mortar illumination, which means we're getting shot at. So I grab all my stuff. I'm in shorts and Crocs, uh, same Crocs I'm wearing right this second, actually. These are combat Crocs, uh, combat, combat approved, combat tested. And uh, I start, I grab my stuff and my radio and start booking it the, I don't know, 80 meters, 100 meters from the shower stall to... Uh, the operations center so I can do my job. And as I'm running between these two buildings, I hear one of those 84 millimeter recoilless rifle rounds going overhead. And I can't, I still this day, I can't remember if I was saying it in my head or if I was saying it out loud. Uh, just picture a pasty white boy running in the dark in Afghanistan between two, two, uh, two sheds, just yelling to himself, you never hear the one that kills you. You never hear the one that kills you. And it's a just a saying you have, you're like, Hey, you don't hear it because it exploded and you're dead already. You know, you, you don't hear that one. And, uh, it's going over my head and boom, it hits right to my mind. But as I'm looking right on top of the aid station, uh, where the medics operate and I'm thinking, well, the medics are dead. That's great. Okay. Well, let's kill these guys so we can worry about that in a minute, AKA, you know, do your job. But, uh, and, uh, uh, Right before that round hits, right as it's hitting, I, I, my cadence changes from, I don't, uh, you never hear that one that kills you. You never hear the one that kills you to, I don't want to die naked. I don't want to die naked. I don't want to die naked. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of stayed with me uh, ever since. And then I come to find out later as I ran into the operations center, once again, I'm shirtless. I'm wearing just Army physical fitness you know, training shorts and Crocs. As I run in there later, I heard from two separate people, one of them being the radio operator at this desk and the other being the sergeant of the guard in charge of, you know, uh, the guys assigned to guard the gates and such. They both said a very similar thing that, man, we were, I was getting worried. They were bracketing us. They just hit the aid station like shit. They're, they're actually doing, they're, what are we going to do? And then I see 
Sergeant, Staff Sergeant Pasty-ass white guy Vlieger run into the operations center to go do his job and try to shoot back at these guys. And I think to myself, okay, if he can do it, I can do it. And, you know, in retrospect, I motivated at least two people that night by sprinting my ass off and into the talk as we were getting shot at and, you know, doing our job. But we did not lose anybody that night, thank God. Uh, they, the uh, physician's assistant, the captain, uh, medic there, uh, was injured. He was knocked unconscious. And, uh, but he made a full recovery and we're all, we ended up getting the guys down the road, but, uh, but yeah, that's my favorite story. I don't want to die naked. Maybe that says something deep seated about, uh, you know, my hangups, but, but yeah, it's a thing. Does that mean you clean, you wear clean underwear anytime you leave the house in case you get in an accident and they have to strip you naked? I stopped worrying about it too much, you know, <laughs> but, uh, it's, it's, you never know until you're on, under, uh, under the gun, literally sometimes you know, how you feel about something, I guess. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Now we'll get into the, the meat of the podcast. Meat and potatoes. Yeah. So you grew up on the West Coast. Um, did you grow up around guns? So uh, my parents are both uh, ex-Los uh, Angeles County Sheriff's deputies. Uh, my okay. mom worked mostly, and this was, uh, they were both deputies in the eighties, uh, early 80, like 80 to 89 or 88, something like that. Uh, my dad worked drugs and gangs for the most part. And he continued on to do seminars in Washington state on anti, uh, gang, you know, policing and such. And, uh, my mom worked the jails mostly until she became pregnant with my si big sister. And then I think she took mostly a backseat. I have to refresh my history there. But uh, to answer that question directly, we were raised around firearms. Uh, we had a vacation uh, cabin in the boonies in Montana. We'd go to, uh, is there, you know, around age five for myself, we'd start hanging out there, 94, 95, and, uh, you know, improving it and hanging out there in our summers. And we had 20 acres, we could shoot off the, off the porch. So age seven-ish, uh, I, I was given a BB gun and was, you know, given instruction and tested with that first and I made some mistakes of course didn't shoot my eye out did not have a Christmas story incident thankfully and uh went on from there so I was looking I, I'd always look forward to going to Montana because I could shoot guns you know uh, safely and I'd go on you know uh hunting expeditions with a 22 shortly after I still have that 22 it's a uh, Remington model 512 Sportmaster it's a tube fed 22 long rifle made in the made in 59 58 um and uh it has no serial number it's the only gun i own that does not have a serial number because it was pre-64 didn't need one but uh you can order it out of the sears catalog but uh yeah i would uh had aftermarket lyman peep sights on it and uh, i would make shots on small game with that learn how to shoot with that and then on onwards and upwards from that uh my mom uh she was uh, held at gunpoint when she was pregnant with me uh, and Rob. So her, she's had, she's not against guns, but she is not, I don't think she's pulled a trigger since um, that incident. Uh, and she just doesn't you know, partake in that uh, activity as much, but she's, she's, she's not against them at all. My dad is a uh, uh, heck I've, I've uh, Lotus mammal form and stuff like that. He still shoots here and there. And uh, I learned how to hunt with my dad. I uh, took my first deer at age 12 with him with a uh, 243 Winchester in uh, Eastern Washington. And uh, so, yeah, I, I would say that I had a medium upbringing with guns. Um, it was not hunting every other weekend or duck hunting or anything. We went dove hunting, I think, once or twice. 
uh, and deer hunting. But past that, hunting has always been a thing I do with my dad, not so much something I do on my own. But firearms, uh, I got into that myself more so than with my parents when I started dating my wife. Uh, my now father-in-law took me to my first USPSA match when I was 15. Well, that's interesting. That's not normal. I don't know how uh, many people can say their very first match is with 15 with their future father-in-law. So it yeah, sounds like you two hit it off at the very beginning. Uh, yeah, and that's a longer story than I want to want to tell here. But uh, <laughs> the uh, long story short, um, if you've ever heard of the boomer shoot, uh, it, I don't know that it goes on anymore since COVID anyway, but uh, it is an event or was an event in central Idaho where you'd go out and shoot at high explosives. And these, this is, you know, not Tannerite. It's not just Tannerite. It's his own concoction. ATF license has a bunker, you know, mixes and mixes his own formula. Uh, but I was an RO for that when I was 15, you know, and, you know, I shot my first full auto when I was 15 at that event, uh, made my first hit on a target past, I think 200 yards at that event, you know, in an explosive target shot my first 50 BMG, uh, out of an, a AR 15 upper actually, now that I remember it, it was a single shot side magazine, bolt action, 50 BMG upper for an AR 15 at that event. So that's kind of how I got started. And, uh, uh, yeah, took off from there. Wow. Okay. So at what point did you know, uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and join the army. Um, I didn't join out of patriotism, like strictly. I, I, I am patriotic. I'm not to say I'm not to any ever say I, I'm not, I love this country. I love being a part of it. Love being, love being here. Uh, that's not the question. It's so much as, you know, why did I go, I, I was in college. I started slacking off and paying the price. And long story short, my dad said, you know, hey, yeah, you're going to stay home with us and be under my thumb until you shape up. And I said, no, I'm not. And uh, started looking at the Army. You know, the this was uh, immediately pre-surge in uh, our uh, war in Iraq. So, you know, recruiting was more so, do you have a pulse than uh, are you, you know, uh, proficient at what we need uh and uh yeah did that and uh i was at, I, i'll never forget i was at meps uh doing my physical and the guy next to me got a forty thousand dollar sign-on bonus to be a tanker and uh wow. i got thirty one thousand, i think but that was mostly because of what i was doing and leaving in two weeks so i was leaving quick you know for i was going airborne i was going to an in needs mos and i was uh leaving quickly uh, but he got 40 grand to be a tanker and he had had open heart surgery. Like he had a scar from stem to stern where they cracked him wow. open and he got a waiver. So, uh, you know, wow. Uh, they were taking everybody. Yeah. In retrospect, whatever lieutenants complained about how, you know, they're promoting too quickly and all this stuff, they had a point. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. I've yeah. never heard of anything like that. People being yeah. able to get a waiver. Oh, you could get a waiver for almost anything except tattoos. Uh, if you had a neck tattoo back then, God forbid you have a neck tattoo and try to join. And then when we, when we were in Iraq that in 07, 08, they changed the policy to allow neck and hand tattoos. So several people came back from mid to or leave with neck and hand tattoos. It was, it was a wonderful time to be a soldier. It was great. Uh, oh whenever, whenever people talk to me about arbitrary rules, regulations, and laws, I think back to that and how they changed the rules and 
it's just, yeah, I'm not a fan of arbitrary limits, I guess. That's crazy, <clears throat> which has nothing to do with proficiency or ability to do your job or anything else. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I, I was raised to be a rule breaker, rule bender, you know, and not, not breaker as much as, you know, ask the question, why is that rule there? What is the purpose of this rule? Uh, okay, the intent is blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, that doesn't apply to me. Uh, I'm, I'm not, that's not my intent. I'm not doing that. So why does that rule have to apply to me? Well, that's just the rule, sir, because it's easier for you, not because it's the right answer, but because it's easier for you. Uh, the, uh, the greatest example I have for that, as it applies to this podcast anyway, was uh, 2017 Alabama State Championship. I won that match against Cody Baker. Those of you who have been paying attention for a long time may recognize that name. He's the 2017 uh, Open Division National Champion. Uh, an amazing individual, very hardworking man. I would I want to get a beer with him. I haven't seen him in three years. Uh, he's a great guy. Uh, but I beat him by 1.8 points. Be, in, in part because of someone breaking the rules. Uh, I was assessed a foot fault while we were shooting this match. I did not commit a foot fault is the problem. Uh, it was a mistaken call, and I called the RO on this. I said, hey, if I show you a video, will you look at it? And under the rules, uh, to this day, that is not the right answer. You're not supposed to use video in arbitration or for scoring issues. Right. Well, he looked at the video and he saw clear as day. And it's great with open division because you can see the gas come out of the compensator when a shot is fired. There's no question about the timestamp. You don't need audio to know when a shot goes off. You can see this column of smoke come up out of the comp. So he looked at it, saw the column of smoke not be at the same time my foot hit the ground and said, hey, take his foot fault off. And I won the match. Now, the real thing about this is under the rules, that was wrong. Under the rules, I should have gotten that foot fault and I should have lost the match. Okay. Ethically and morally, I was in the right. You know, uh, one of my favorite commanders in my entire 10 years in the Army, uh, Captain Rick B. Helton. Uh, I'll never forget that man because one of the, he said, call a spade a spade. If it's right, it's right. It's wrong, it's wrong. And I try to live that way, you know, when I can. And that was wrong. It was wrong to be, for me to be assessed that foot fault. It was wrong. It was factually incorrect. So I am glad they made the right call and walked it back. Like, you know, I, at the same time, under the rules, this arbitrary rule that we can't use video doesn't take into account that accidents happen, doesn't allow for that procedure. So what I did was wrong. The outcome was morally right. It was truthful, but it was against the rules. And I posted about that, I want to say, about a year after it happened. And man, I think I, I stopped looking after 200 comments. It was a very divided. Wow. About what the right answer was. And yeah. So if you were king of USPSA for a day, would you change that rule? Yes. I would too. I would, but I would put limits on it. Agreed. And I think, I think a lot of yeah. people, I, I've heard that, that, that comment a lot. I, I, I agree. Uh, the, at the end of the day, as a minimum, as long as you're allowing a tribunal to review, you know, hey, does this matter and, and to suss it out? You're not leaving it in the hands of just the match director or just the RM uh, or just, you know, unofficial from an ROI. Uh, you're allowing three people. And I, I do think that's a great idea We or a great process we have in this sport is to have a tribunal or have a, you know, it's shooters generally, you know, it's, you know, it'd be one range officer and 
whatever the mix is. But uh, I think that that allows for the on one hand, it's a game. Right. But on the other hand, it's a very expensive game. We put a lot of money, time, money, yeah. energy, sweat, tears into this. It means something. We wouldn't be on the range doing it if it didn't mean anything. So, yeah, I, I would change it 100 um, percent. I think for for things like uh, specifically anything involving a DQ or safety, uh, it's kind of a mixed bag. I'm, I'm right. I'm, I, I don't know. I'd have to sp- I'd have to brainstorm it with some educated people and come to a a better outcome, but I do think there's room for it, especially in this day and age. Yeah. I think foot faults are a very good one that it could be yep. used for. Um, I think 180 breaking the 180, unless it's so egregious that it's obvious. That's, that's a hard one. It's hard. Fish eye lenses. Yeah. Even a hat cam is not going to show you, you know, true right. to life. And uh, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I was a RO on a, uh, the stage I DQ'd on actually in open nationals in 18, I DQ'd in 18 and then there's nine days of nationals, three consecutive back to back mm-hmm. matches. And I was ROing for production and I was stuck on the stage that I DQ'd on, but man, it wasn't that we wanted to, it was that we had to put an RO to watch uh, the left-hand side as people went from right to left. I'm not going to bore you with the details, but basically it was, a we saw, read the stage brief and we were like, this is going to happen. Uh, Cause uh, you know, the if if wins, blah blah, it was going to be likely uh, for people to to disqualify, and it did happen. We had to had disqualified several people. Several people disqualified themselves. You know, I, I'm still confident that the calls we made were correct, but uh, you had to put someone there to watch for it. And then, hey man, sorry, like, well, well, but you you couldn't see. Yes, we could. We put someone there specifically because this area is challenging and could lead to this. You know, in my mind, it's like, hey, how about we try not to put that in the match? You know, to make it that stupid. You know, but as well, on the other hand, is it's your job to maintain control of your muzzle. Yeah. Ready, set, go. It, it is. Yeah, I agree. I, I'm not a fan of, and I don't like necessarily the word trap, but sometimes no, yeah. it almost seems like that's what they are when they're, it's so obvious that somebody's going to do it, you know. There um, is such a thing as an RO trap, you know, with regards to, stage flow and and prop uh, placement. Uh, I posted a video for Carry Optics Nationals and with one stage in particular, you had to shoot this one target. Like it wasn't on the 180, but it was like, I don't know, five degrees, eight degrees away from the 180. And multiple people posted their hat cam footage of that stage and just the the internet know-it-alls came out in force. You know, oh my God, you, you were pointing a gun at the other person and this... And it's like, on one hand, yes, we could work harder to make stuff like that safer, more obvious that it is safe, you know, sure. And on the other hand, it's no one died. Go pound sand. Uh, you know, there, there is room in between. I, I'm not I'm not saying I'm of the opinion to go pound sand here. I'm saying it's just right. you, you hear the same you. you hear the same thing over and over again about how this is unsafe. And the one thing I love about this sport is we have an excellent safety track record and i like to keep that going on yeah so for sure if we, can, if we can make changes that help make that more likely i'm all for, i'm not all for it but i think it's worth considering i, I would agree I, I think you could build in a little safety buffer on the on the edges of the the stage so you don't get to the 180 but it's i mean because look people are going to dq themselves whether it's a a 
a range, I mean, a bullet they fire over the berm when they're reloading or they go to reload and they, they're just not paying attention to their muzzle. There are so many other ways that they're going to DQ themselves that I feel like you can keep it at 170 to 175 and, and be happy. Yeah. No. Unfortunately, it can and will be a subjective thing for a lot of people. You know, it's, it's, you know, until and unless we strap lasers to everyone's muzzles and have, have, uh, you know, sensors installed in every bay to track where that laser is reading at any given point. I mean, we have to rely on people that are fallible because they are people to make the call left or right. Yeah. I think the craziest DQs I've seen are the ones where the, it's the unloaded table start. And for some reason they'll walk around to the front of the table. Yeah, I saw someone on Area 8 a long time ago go home without firing a shot because of an unloaded start. They had magazines in front of their gun, and they went to adjust the mag, and thanks for playing. Thanks for your yeah. entry fee. Have a great day. Drive and I, I think I think one of the ones that I saw that was like that it, in, the, in Area 8 was their magazine fell off the table, so they walked around to get the magazine oh. with their gun on the table. Not thinking about it. I get it, but, yeah. you know. It was unloaded and everything, but they still flagged yeah. themselves. You know? Yeah, and, and that actually brings up just a real quick anecdote. When I was shooting, uh, this was post I was in the army, so I think I was this was I was seventeen or eighteen years old. I went back home to visit my girlfriend, my now wife, and shot a match with her dad. And uh, we were borrowing, a, we were sharing a gun. He had a STI Eagle uh, gunsmith, you know, build that we were sharing. And uh, I went from the safe table. I didn't have a holster on me, so I just locked the slide back, put the muzzle towards the dirt, grabbed it backwards. So, you know, grabbed it like this, you know, so it's slides locked back. It's pointed in a safe direction. It is physically incapable of firing a shot in this configuration. To me, in my army brain, we're safe. We are completely, and, and, and through logic and, and, and fact, it is safe. It is physically yes. It's, we're not breaking any of the four rules. Right. We're fine. You know, but he grabs me and says, don't do that. Don't do that. And I'm like, what's the problem? So I guess what I'm really trying to say is just because something is against the rules doesn't make it unsafe. Right. But it's just against the rules. Yeah. 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 I agree. So let's talk about the army real quick. So. Did you choose your MOS or did they say, hey, we'd like for you to do this? Yeah, no, uh, I, I, I chose, uh, uh, I, I chose, so initially I was, um, uh, I can't remember if I was contracted or not. I don't think I signed anything at the time, but I was uh, in line for, was about to, whatever you want to call it, uh, signed for 89 Bravo, which is ammunition supply specialist. You know, for those in the know, it's BB counter, you know, track the bullets, track the shells, you know, right. make sure stuff's accounted for. And in retrospect, I thank the Lord every single freaking day <laughs> that I did not go in and do that. I, oh, yeah, that'd be the, army, the army can be the best thing that ever happens to you. It can be that. It probably won't be. You'll probably come out more broken. You'll have a GI Bill. You'll have some cool experiences, some new friends, and some your old friends won't understand your stories you tell about the new friends, but it's an experience, right? But 
holy crap i i cannot say enough how uh, glad i am that i did not go and be accountable for ammunition while i was in uh i chose 39 uh, 13 delta based off of most of the bonus you know as I, I walked in and said i want to do something cool i want to do something worth doing uh i i'm flexible on on days i can on, on when i can leave i had excellent test scores i had a one 29 or 131 something like that gt score uh i was i mean i i got one of the highest scores in the asfab you can get i had to pee the whole time it was great uh but uh, like a 93 on the asfab or something like that and my line scores were qualified me for almost anything i wanted to do but uh, yeah they said hey you want to be artillery i was like oh okay sure why not so yeah you'll be airborne like jump out airplanes that sounds cool why not you know, sounds great. As I was airborne contract, and that's the main thing I worried about was doing something worth doing. I, I, I knew I didn't want to be infantry just because, you know, it's like, hey, just walk everywhere and carry a gun. Like, that doesn't sound great. I wanted to do something neat, you know, something high tech sounding, I guess. I don't know. I was 17. Sue me. Uh, and uh, I think I did okay. Uh, it, the ap- application of it outside the army wasn't great, but uh, it was uh, it was fun while I did it. You know, I like to say that uh, what I did was weaponized algebra. Uh, you know, not not even not even calculus, not even trig, like not, not, not none of the higher math. It was very basic math that we did to to shoot artillery. I, I'm not trying to oversell it. And anybody who is listening to this that is artillery that tries to oversell what they do, we're watching. We know what you're doing. Stop <laughs> lying to people. Just just stop it right now. Yeah, exactly. So where did you go to basic? Fort Sill, Oklahoma, the wonderful garden state that it is, had me for from uh, late April 06 until late September of 06 when I left for airborne school from there. But I went to basic and uh, AIT there. For those of you who want a little piece of trivia, uh, if you are, are familiar with In the Army Now with Polly Shore, uh, the scene where the uh, frag grenade gets thrown, the, the frag grenade scene was filmed on Fort Sill. So I went to the same grenade pits as Polly Shore. That's my, you know, minor claim to fame there. Uh, but no, it was, uh, it was fine. We, we did basic and then went, you know, three blocks down the road to go to uh, AIT, which is job school, to, to learn the job. Got to see a tornado. Got to see uh, extreme weather. You know, it's Oklahoma. There's not really much else to say. Uh, tattooing was legalized while I was there. So I got my first tattoo while I was there. But uh yeah, that's that's really all I really have to say about Oklahoma. I went back once while I was in, and it hadn't changed much. So, those of you who live in Oklahoma that are listening, I am deeply sorry. So, so when you went to, as you call it, airborne school, at as I know it, it's jump school for uh, when I went. That's what I we called it in the Marines. Yep, jump school, airborne school, same thing. Yep. All right. I went in March of 80, the same, well, no, a year before you were born, actually. March of 88, I went to jump school, graduated April 1st. So you went, what, like summer of 86, end of summer? I mean, 06? Uh, I graduated in end of September September of 06. Okay. So uh, my grandmother pinned my wings on me. It was a very... Great, get great out of here yeah yeah my really? yeah i can't remember if she gave me blood wings or not uh 
blood wings being when you pin the wings on your uniform and then hammer fist them into your chest to stab them into your clavicle. Uh, that's blood wings. Uh, I did get I did get blood wings, but uh, I can't can't remember if my grandmother had the nerve to do it to me. <laughs> so, where did they have the towers in operation at that time? Of uh, the two hundred foot towers. Uh huh. Yes, uh, I jumped. I dropped off of one. I th- think I was. I think we were ahead of schedule one day, and they said, "Hey, we're going to get some people through it." And I, I volunteered to go, and. Uh, uh, I couldn't hear what the Sergeant Airborne was yelling at me from the ground about slipping away and all that. So I'm like, huh? Huh? I hit the ground just fine. And he runs up to me yelling, why didn't you? I "I couldn't hear you, man. And uh, I got to watch. I'm sure you said it just like that. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I got to watch a poor, uh, those of you who don't know, the 200-foot towers are 200-foot tall. They look like radio towers. And they drag you up with a modified parachute that's held open and then release you to allow you to drift down and practice slipping and uh, uh, moving your, your parachute and landing correctly. It's the most realistic thing you can do without actually having to jump out of an airplane. Uh, there's a guy who was very, very scared, who was regretting his choice to join the Army and join the Airborne. Uh, and he was getting strapped into this ring that holds the parachute open. And they get him like 10 feet off the ground and the rings let go and it collapses the chute. So they have to lower him again, reset the rings and they drag him up and they're about to drop them. And they, they bring you up a little bit and then release you and they bring him up and the chute collapses again, which would have been death most likely. Right. If they him. I mean, eh, maybe you've been okay, but not optimal. And they just had to yell at him. It's like, assume a modified Position of attention. We will lower you. Stay still. And you just see him crying, tear, crocodile tears up there, just, just praying, please don't drop me. Please don't drop me. Was, yeah. Uh, don't be that guy, and you'll be fine. Right. Yeah, I got to go up uh, on that tower as well. That That is a cool time. That is fun. What was the uh, was the PX still across the street from the barracks? Um, sure. Um that was a year more than your life ago. I know. <laughs> I do not remember. Uh, I'm like, I don't I have no idea. For for people like me that were immediately post, you know, basic training and, and job school, that was like our first we were still in training, you know, like we're still, yeah. you know, babes in the woods and stuff. So that shop at was like a sense of freedom. You know, we walked across the street and had some freedom at the shop at buy tobacco and energy drinks and stuff. And no one could tell us no, because we're adults now. So, (laughs) well, I was a corporal in the Marines. I'd already been in for almost, almost three years. I'd spent the last two and a half, almost two and a half years in Marine reconnaissance. So when we, when I got there, they actually, the black hats pulled us aside and they were like, Hey, you have to understand that for the soldiers, this is just a continuation of basic training and AIT and all of that. So it goes, we, we may yell at you and stuff in front of them just to make everything the same, but we were never treated like that. Plus I had my car there, you know, I was from Lejeune. I had my car. So me and another corporal, we were headed out We'd go other places for lunch or out in town for dinner or, or whatever on the weekend. So 
I, I don't even, I probably never went into that PX. I gotcha. And, and to, to give you some similarity, that was very similar to how any other, you know, non IET initial entry training, uh, soldier or what have you at airborne school was treated, you know, like, yes, okay. you have to be information times. Yes. You have to be in the right uniform, the right time and do the training. But besides okay. that, we know you're not the same. Keep in mind, I joined in 06. They were ramping up for the surge. There was a lot of prior service people coming in. You know, you had a lot of old faces wearing low ranks uh, because they either joined out of patriotism or they were coming back in. Uh, AIT, jump school, jump school, all of it had people of prior service that were coming back in with uh, stuff not matching as it should and being treated differently as they should. And, and that happens all the time, too, with when they restructure different jobs in the Army. You know, hey, we're getting rid of, the, rid of this MOS. We're combining it with this. If you're already in this MOS, you have to go back to this school to get recertified and blah, blah, blah. They don't treat you. If you're a staff sergeant, they don't treat you the same as a private going through basic training, you know, or, or going through their initial training. So, yeah. Right. But airborne school no. was uh, – it, the hardest part about airborne school is convincing yourself to jump. The, the, the rest of it is nothing special. But people now, like did, to did, did you ever get a chance to stand in the door of the aircraft? Uh, no. Uh, I was number two man, though, for my first jump, which was okay. unexpected. Uh, I got moved. You know, I say, hey, private, stand up. You know, I'm on the plane, and... Somebody else takes my spot for whatever reason. And I'm like, okay, uh, sorry, Airborne, where, 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 where am I supposed to go? He just points in a direction towards the tail of the bird. And I go sit down and I sit down. I look left. Everyone's to my left. I look to the right. There's one person to my right. And I, it's a first sergeant, you know. And, and I look at the first sergeant. And say, first sergeant, does this mean I'm number two man now? You know how your brain turns off a little bit, especially when you're you know, talking to senior uh officers were enlisted and he looks at me looks down the bird and goes i imagine it does private <laughs> roger that first sergeant and uh he gets in the bird and, or gets in the doorway you know gets prepped and i'm standing there ready to hand off my static line and jump out and uh he jumps he goes out the door and it was the first experience i really had with turning my brain off you know, like they, they train you and they do it left and you know, it's to train you. So you just re reactively, reflexively do it. And it makes a lot of sense because, you know, as I'm contemplating and processing, it, the best way I can describe it is he just disappeared. Like, like <laughs> in, in, in a home or in a building, someone exits the door. They walk out the door. You, you know, hey, if I run, I could go out the door and catch up to them. Be like, hey, man, you forgot your phone, you know, or whatever. But that doesn't work the same way in aircraft. You know, when they exit that door, they're they coming back. You know, they they you know they can't no. walk back and grab their, their There are no take backs. Yeah, no take backs when you jump out of airplanes. No. So as I'm processing that, I hand my static line off, make a right face into the door, extend my, you know, those left doors, so throw my right leg vigorously out and exit the aircraft. C seventeen was very Cadillac exit. Uh, okay. and all of a sudden I'm counting to four and I'm like, Oh, sweet. You know, it's over. Like the hard part's done. The hard, you know, actually throwing yourself out of a moving aircraft. That's the hard part. The rest of it kind of takes care of itself. 
Did you did you ever get a chance to jump out of any rotary wing aircraft? Unfortunately not. Got back from Afghanistan and knew uh, commanding general of Alaska. And I don't know if it was funding or resources or wild hairs of people's asses, but no more jumps that don't count towards jump master. You need so many jumps to be able to go to jump master school. We were short on jump masters. So they wanted to prioritize jumps out of high performance aircraft. Any rotary is a low performance. Uh, Sherpa is low performance. Uh, so it had to be C-130 or C-17 jumps to count for jump master. And they wanted to prioritize those. So I never got the chance to jump out of a Sherpa. They did tons of those. I do have Canadian jump wings though. Interesting. All that means Ooh. is there's a Canadian jump master. And to be honest, it doesn't even really mean anything because he didn't do much. It was, but that's beside the point. But yeah, Alaska was cool, but the stupid rules made it less cool. Okay. Well, I have one, I'll share one quick jump story with you. We were jumping out of a CH 46 and in the back, you've got the ramp and the top clamshell. So the clamshell folds up and in though. And I was, I was in the next string to go and I'm watching the string ahead of me. And one of the first guy out, he's, he's shuffling off the back of the, um, ramp and hit, he, he's wearing a helmet, so he can't see. He hits the clamshell right on his forehead, falls down right on his, right on his ass, and then tumbles forward out of the CH 46 rolling. Whoa, what just happened? Oh, Luckily, I, I, not, I mean, nothing came of it, but from our end, it was like, whoa, what the hell just happened? Exactly. Uh, I did do a tailgate C-130 jump, which was hell of a lot of fun. Uh, it's definitely not something you want for your first jump, though. Just stepping out into oblivion. There's no, you know, there's, it, it, it's great. But if you don't know what you're doing, it, it can make you do what your buddy did there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, tailgate tailgate jumps are amazing if you're confident that you can execute. Well, the nice thing was nobody else did the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Once we saw what he did, everybody was crouching. I, I, I'm five foot eight on a good day, you know, five foot seven and three quarters on a bad day. Uh, and people give me shit for being short. I'm not super short, but I'm not tall. That's for damn sure. So, you know, like Nils, great guy. Love that guy. Uh, uh, you know, I give him shit whenever I can about his tall, you know, lanky ass. But tell you what, <laughs> aircraft like that, Sherpas, all that, five foot eight with a helmet and boots on is like the upper limit for height to not have to duck. Yeah. So yeah. it has its benefits. Absolutely. Anyhow. All right. So what, to finish up the, uh, the Army stuff, what, 10 years is a long time to spend in the army. I mean, you're halfway to retirement. Why'd you get out? Cause I'm halfway. Cause you're not there. I'm halfway. I realized I had to do all of it over again. Oh, like, I see what you're saying. 10, ten years is, is the decision point. It is. If you go past 10 years, you know, and then get out, you're dumb. You're just, you know, you're, 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 you're no, okay. That's, that's, that's put into, there's plenty of reasons to get out at 12 or whatever, you know, I, your life, live it, go for it. But, uh, for me, and there's a lot of other reasons in the background here, but, uh, yeah, 10 years, one month, 19 days. Um, uh, I'd had three knee surgeries by that point. Uh, I'd had a throat surgery. I'd seen three tours. 
Uh, I almost went to Africa for Ebola, and I'm glad I didn't because uh, every single person that went there just hated life, you know, left and right. Uh, I had, yeah, I just, I was done. I was tired. Uh, keep in mind, by the time I was 23, I'd been in six years. I was a staff sergeant, uh, and I had been deployed for over 10% of my life. Okay. One in 10 of my days on this planet. I want to say it was like, what's, what's a, Joel, I can do math here. Let's see. Uh, I was 23 and I had been deployed for three solid years. So 23, nope, 23, 13%, 13% of my life had been spent overseas. That's a lot. You know, that's a lot for anybody. And I don't know. I was especially without, you know, the, if there had been ongoing conflict where I had, you know, where I'd had the chance to do some cool stuff, you know, doing my job, maybe I would have stayed in. But my, especially my last tour, I, you know, the running joke was I went to war and a garrison broke out. You know, we had guys getting, getting lit up for not being in complete uniform when they were running to their, to their, to their artillery pieces to shoot back at the bastards who were trying to kill us. You know, like, oh, 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 you, you, there's photographic evidence of you not being in complete uniform. Yeah, we were manning the guns to, 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 to shoot back to do our job. Well, you weren't in full uniform, so that's a, you know, you didn't have your full PPE on. So that, that's a that's a counseling statement. You know, I'm, the story I gave about, I gave earlier about me running into the operations center to, to compute fire missions, you know, shirtless. As I'm working, I get a tap on the shoulder. Hey, sorry, Leo, put a shirt on. In a minute. Give me, give me a minute, please. Um, and, and I saw that taking over. You know, I, I, I started my service with people telling stories about calling fire missions while wearing flip flops and bath towels. And that spoke to me. That's like, yes, no matter what, we're going to get the job done. The mission comes first. And I saw that drifting away. Uh, that's part of it. But no, I was tired. I'm, I'm glad I got out when I did. Yeah, that probably started in the mid 90s. Early to mid nineties. Yeah. Everyone looks at the previous generation and says, "Oh man, you know, like, we had it better. We had we worked harder." Nobody ever looks at the next generation and says, "Man, these guys work hard. They're smarter. They do all this stuff." And I don't know. I just see the rose-colored glasses analogy a lot. It's fine. It was going to happen. You know, you spend uh, over ten years at war. It's going to happen. People are going to find things to bitch about. But no, I, I did ten years and. I'm happy I got out when I did. I'm proud of the service that I that I performed. Uh, you, I wouldn't trade the experience for anything, but you couldn't pay me enough to do it again. Okay. Now, after, once you got out, how long did it take you to find the USPSA game again? And and I know you said you. I wrote it down about 2015, 2016, which is about the time you got out. So the day you got, so by holding up the zero before, sign. Before I got okay. out. All right. Uh, so tell me how you got that serious into USPSA before you got out. I uh, got back. I got back from Afghanistan in late 12, October, 2012. Uh, got a dog, hung out with my wife and started lo- reloading ammo. I, I, I decided while I was deployed, I'm going to buy a kit. I'm going to learn how to make my own ammo and I'm off to the races, you know, and uh, keep in mind, I started competing uh, in 
2011-ish, not to win, but to be more confident and competent with my carry gun. I carried a gun for self self-defense, self-protection, and I wanted to make sure that I knew what the hell I was doing. So going to a match, paying 20 bucks and shooting 150, 50 rounds is really cheap practice. That's, you know, and you're, you're grading yourself. It's a grading, it's a graded event. You know, you're graded against other people. It's on a curve. So in my mind, as long as I'm not last, I'm, you know, I'm top, I'm middle, mid third, mid chunk, you know, like of people I've, I, that's my training for this month. You know, I've gone out and I've tested myself. And then I uh, went on, on deployment, came back from Afghanistan. I was in Alaska all of a sudden. And Alaska, for those of you who don't know, is very, very boring in the winter. Unless you do winter activities. If you're not into snowmobiling or, you know, snowshoeing or you name your snow-based activity, ice-based activity, it sucks to be in Alaska in the winter. It really does. And I'm not much of a guy for those kind of activities. So I was shooting at the indoor range every other weekend. Twice a month, they'd have either IDPA or USPSA, alternating schedule, uh, 30 minutes, 45 minutes north of me. And I was reloading ammo. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go up here and start shooting. And got to know the guys. Had a great time. And ended up leaving Alaska in mid-14. Got to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, Tennessee area. And... Uh, Made, went from C-class to B-class very quickly. And then I shot my first real major match. I shot the Florida Open in 2015 with a good friend of mine, Ken Rose. We went down there together and shot the match. I did really well. And I come back and I tell my wife, I said, honey, this is really stinking fun. And I'm not terrible at it. I, I want to do this as much as possible. Like, I, I, I want to see where this ends. I want to see what I'm – because I was – Pretty good with minimal training, minimal attention, you know, not much dry fire, just shooting. Just I'm going to go out and shoot. And I had some natural ability. And uh, I, I told her, and, and she gave me the pat, pat, pat. Oh, honey, it's nice to have goals. You know, because I told her I wanted to make master by the end of the year. That was a B class. I made A class very quickly. And she gave me, you know, pat, pat, pat. I made master that year. And I traded for an open gun and then I uh, got out in mid-16. And I basically used my savings and the time, you know, terminal leave to just, I shot 22 major events in 2016. Just major matches. Just major matches. Now that, wow. that counts falling steel and three gun, but I want to say it was like 18 USPSA majors. Um, wow. And the rest was whatever. Or, you know, I'm fudging the numbers a little bit, but I know the number was 22. I'm confident on that. Uh, part of that is my location. I was in central, I was in the border of Kentucky and Tennessee. So I was driving to the vast majority. I was drive to Florida, uh, drive to Pennsylvania, drive to Arkansas. You know, uh, if it was less than eight, if it was less than 12 hours drive, 12 hours or less, I would drive to it. And uh, I put a lot of miles on my car doing it, slept in my car a lot, and I loved it. I wouldn't do it again, but I loved it. Uh, and I won my first major in May of 2016, the Cowtown Classic down in Texas. And uh, people were very confused at why the stats said an A-class open shooter won open. And uh, yeah, I, I, my classification lagged behind a little bit on my skills around that time period because of how much effort I was putting into it. And uh, 
yeah, I was really into powerlifting at the time, really into physical fitness. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the biggest driving factor as I was learning how to shoot. But, but yeah, uh, long story short, I found something I'm good at. I found something that I enjoy doing. It gives me purpose. It gives me a reason to wake up in the morning and try to try to win. Uh, and it is one of the greatest sports available to people that when you win, it's your fault. When you lose, it's your fault. You are in control of success. You are in control of defeat. You have individual control over every aspect of what, uh, of the determining factors for victory or defeat. It's your ammo. It's your firearm. It's your hands. It's your physical ability. It's your understanding of the stage. It's your mental mindset. It's all of it. That's why I did wrestling in high school. I did wrestling for uh, two semesters, uh, two years in high school. You know, I, and it's because I, it's not that I hate team sports. It's that team sports don't speak to me. If I win or lose, I, I kind of want, if I look in the mirror, I, I get to find the reason, you know, it, call it being selfish if you want. That's probably ap applicable, but it, it's, it, it's, it's a test of yourself. And I realized that it's what, it's what I chose to, to try and do. And in 2015, 26, 2016 timeframe, I sat down with my dad and I said, you know, I, I want to do this. I want to see where this ends. I, I, want, I want at one point, I want there to be my name next to an entry somewhere in some book that, you know, at a national championship or a world championship. At one point, John Vlieger was the best at this thing. He, he won. He was the best. And, and like I said, call it selfish if you want, but like, that's why I'm here. It's, it's, I want to win. I, I'm, I'm not wanting to win at the expense of other people. I'm not wanting to win in spite of other people. I'm wanting to push myself to be good enough. I'm wanting to push my own comprehension, my own physical ability, my own mental processing to be better than everybody else's X, Y, Z of what I just mentioned. You know, it, it's, it, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty pure in that regard. It's, it's a, it's a self test. And I think that's a big reason why I started with it and uh, why I've stuck with it is I'm good at it. You know, it's, 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 you, you introduce a kid to chess when they're eight and they find out that they're a natural prodigy. Of course, you're going to push them to do it. And maybe they, well, me personally, like my, 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 my mindset, my, uh, uh, oh, what's the word? I get satisfaction from being good at something. I'm, 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 everybody does. Like, who, who doesn't yeah. like being good at something they want to do? No one likes sucking at something. No one enjoys, you know, being poorly, uh, doing poorly at an event or something like that. You know, you, people like doing well. So if you have that and you find you're doing well at something, you know, being able to pursue it is a blessing. It's a, uh, it's what, where I find myself doing it. Okay. We got to go back for a second because yeah. I, for the most part, I agree with you, but let's, let's, for the sake of this conversation, go back to Ipsic nationals mm -hmm. and the weather. Do you think someone shooting on Thursday or Friday had the same conditions 
No. As the individuals. So could that be one of those situations where it's not a hundred percent in your control? A hundred percent. It's not in your control. Okay. I never, never claimed that I, that I, that I control the weather for sure. And, <laughs> no, uh, I know that. <laughs> you know, yeah, there was a, I could pull a few examples out of my hat, but there was a match at South River Gun Club just south of Atlanta years ago. Maybe it was Area 6 or Georgia State. And it poured rain. Like you're shooting in inches of water. Like the runoff was not what it was supposed to be. You're, it's, it's just, it's horrible. It was horrible. I did not win that. You know, it happens. It, it is a thing. Uh, however, I, I would like to, to attack something here uh, or, or address something here. So, uh, and I heard uh, one person mention it at least. Uh, so, Ipsic Nationals, uh, I would like to talk about what happened there. So, uh, I arrived Wednesday, uh, and uh, for those of you who don't know, Thursday was absolutely horrible. Morning was okay, you know, drizzling. The afternoon was, it was the worst conditions I've ever seen that did not result in a stop shooting command. Wow. I had seen worse, but those worse conditions had ceased the activity for the time period that it was going on. Uh, and I, I was working a booth. We were there to set up a booth for Mark 7 Reloading uh, and run that booth the whole weekend. I so me, Timeline. I registered for Ipsic Nats in March. I signed up for Saturday, Sunday. Uh, middle of the year, I noticed everyone I was shooting with had bailed. So I'm like, okay, I have no reason to stay on this schedule. Hey, Let's just shoot all day Thursday, get it done, get it over with, and then run the booth for the rest of the, the weekend. We're driving to Orlando, and we see the weather forecast being absolute dogs and ponies dropping from the sky. And I text the match directors, and I said, hey, can I – is there any provision for me to change? Like, I, I don't want to shoot in this. Who doesn't? You know, who, who, who doesn't <laughs> right. want to do that? Uh, and, hey, can I change the Friday? You know, like just to not shoot in the, the piss and rain tomorrow. And he said, hey, sorry, the only slots available on Friday are for ROs who are ROing people on Thursday. I am a CRO. I maintain my credentials. I work matches where I can. Uh, I've worked many you know, uh, major matches. I was a CRO in 18 at the JP PCC Championship where I won my JP rifle uh, here and there where I can help without it conflicting with my desire to win the match. You know, If I want to shoot with those guys, I help out where I can, basically is what, what I'm saying. Uh, and I, I think it's important that everybody does that. It's a very volunteer sport, but, uh, he said, yeah, I said, Hey, I'm a CRO. How about I run shooters all day Thursday and I get to shoot Friday. So I, I made a drug deal, you know, which anybody who's a CRO would be more than welcome to make the same drug deal. <laughs> At no point was it, I'm a GM or I'm important or special or anything like that. It's, Hey, I will trade you my physical labor for a swap of days. And I did. Uh, Bob Diamond, Bob Young, uh, I worked with him the entire day, Thursday, in the pouring rain. I have photographic evidence of this, as well as video uh, of me being It's Crocs. doctored. Yeah, me being running the tablet uh, on, on Thursday. I got in the shower that night, and I thought to myself, as the water is running, I thought to myself, this is the driest I've been all day. Uh, wow. It was horrible. It was it was it was disgusting, and you know. And then come Friday or Thursday, Friday, whatever, I get told, "Hey, someone dropped off this squad with a uh, with your half your super squad peeps. You want to swap to that?" 
And I'm like, I just suffered through Thursday. And now you tell me I didn't have to do that. <laughs> okay, whatever. But I swap. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah. <laughs>